Tracy Walder talks about how Osama bin Laden inspired her to eventually join the CIA. Going back to um, sort of getting into the agency, again, you know, obviously I, I went to what I think is a good school. And, you know, at the time they did not have counterterrorism classes. It wasn't a thing. Why would that be in anyone's curriculum? Right. Um, and so I tried to take I wanted to learn more right, about this situation. Really, my turmoil point for the Middle East was always Israel-Palestine, right? That's what I grew up with, particularly as a Jew. Israel-Palestine, Israel-Palestine, Israel-Palestine. That's what I always knew. But obviously, this taught me that there was more. Bin Laden taught me that there was more. And so I started taking, you know, introduction to Islam. I took I took courses in Islam. I'm, I took Middle Eastern history. I took international affairs. I tried to start adding those classes to my repertoire um, at USC, but I there weren't classes available, and there really weren't, I know this sounds strange, but there really weren't jobs. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Players and playerettes to the most exciting podcast on the interweb. It is exciting. Why? Because I'm I'm the host. I mean, I, Murph, I just got to admit it. You know, I am Morgan Ryan. I am the host. That's what makes it exciting. <laughs> Bullshit. Hey, and I'm Steve Murphy. Uh, call me Murph. And you see what I deal with, so bear with me. Yeah, your burden is small compared to mine, pal. So, <laughs> hey, guys, well, thanks for joining us. Um just hey, some real quick housekeeping. I want we want to talk a little bit about uh, last week too. But just a quick bit of housekeeping here first. Hey, go on over, hit that Apple and Spotify now. Give those five stars, single stars. That's all it takes to make the world a better place to bring peace to Ukraine. It really would. I mean, if we got five stars, Murph and I would we're going to saddle up and go over and take care of business, aren't we, Murph? Okay. <laughs> I got your ticket. You're going with me. Okay. Hey, also, head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for everything, including our books. Jimmy Capra had a bunch of books out. We'll talk about that. Head on over to our book page. We've got our live events, our merch list. Follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be really is Patreon, Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We just released our second installment of 911 what's your emergency and i got a good one on murph i pulled a good one on you didn't i man yeah you didn't tell me everything well you don't have everything when the call comes in it's like you're not this omni you just got to go with your gut you were off on this one but yep. but not for bad but not for bad reasons though but hey if you want to find out why murph was off and you want to find out more about the call what do they have to do steve you got to subscribe to Patreon. And seriously, I mean, how many episodes we got on there now that you can listen to? 30, 40? Oh, man, I think it's six, no, 65, I think, with Holy everything. God. With 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 uh, Pablo, uh, with when we interviewed you and JP. By the way, we've got uh, the Cali Cartel coming up, uh, mm -hmm. Dave and Chris. We've got that coming up. And we've got, we just started this new series, uh, 911, What's Your Emergency? The second one there. I think we're over 65, 67 episodes. We just did our, our uh, review of Silence of the Lambs. Oh, that was so scary. I ate his liver with yeah. fava beans and followed it with a nice Chianti. Yeah, you're you're st you're still sick, puppy. <laughs> so, but hey, if you want to find out what we thought of Silence of the Lambs, yes, I know. Head on over to Patreon.com/slash Game of Crimes. That's where all the fun stuff is, and also use PayPal.com and our email Game of Crimes Podcast at Gmail.com or PayPal.me/slash Game of Crimes. Whatever it makes it easier for you to help support the show and help bring us you even more exciting content. Now. 
I'll get into the disclaimer in a second, but just real quick follow-up. I mean, a lot of great comments about Jimmy and <laughs> I was just thinking of that old uh, Tennessee of uh, Ernie Ford song, you load 16 tons, yeah. <laughs> you load 21 tons, and what do you get? 12 million in cash oh, and a letter gosh. from the AG. I mean, can you imagine just swing you open that door and it was protected by a $6 lock. That's yeah. the only thing protecting 21 million tons of Coke and 12 million in cash, a $6 lock, no guards, no cameras, no nothing. You know, and I, I, I don't think we asked Jimmy this question, but I wonder how many people were killed because of that, because that was a major hit for the Mexican cartel, for Amado Carrillo Fuentes. Uh, you know, and they even referenced that seizure in uh, one of the episodes of Narcos Mexico. Yeah, yep. Good stuff, and, uh, but good for him, man. He's a oh, hell of an investigator. Oh, man. And the thing was, it was so funny, because when we kind of did the clip, he said he's talking to that LAPD uh, deputy sergeant. He goes, Detective Sergeant, he goes, I got no idea what I'm doing. Jimmy is just the most humble guy. He's, he, does, he was not afraid to ask for help. That's what made him such a great agent, and that's what made this thing work. So anyway, that was such a great show. Now, our standard disclaimer, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad things. We talk about bad things. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We do take the story seriously, but— As you can tell, we never, never take ourselves serious. We want this to be fun for us and for you. And if we want it to be fun, guess what's next, Steve? Guess what? Guess what it's time for? Uh, that might be <gasps> Small, Small Town, town Police Blotters. You are, the longer you are in Florida, the slower you get. I'm <laughs> a turtle now. I told you. Oh, this a land of turtles down here. Hey, anyway, this first one comes to us via our Game of Crimes fan group. Now, there's our fan page, our main one that anybody can get into. Then there's our fan group. Uh, hosted by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Woohoo! Uh, woohoo! You got to get it. But this one comes from Logan Donut. Um, I, I just told, I just renamed him. I said, I'm tired of trying to figure out how to pronounce your name, Dora. It's Logan Donut. So this one comes from Logan Donut. This one actually comes from the great Commonwealth of Virginia, Steve. Uh, so Tom Brady is referred to as what? The GOAT, right? The greatest yep. of all time? Yep. He's got some competition now. Uh-oh. A Virginia Sheriff's Office can identify its GOAT, but Tom Brady need not think he's being challenged. The Martinsville Bulletin reports Henry County Sheriff's Captain Scott Barker said it was a goat who helped two deputies flush out a suspect they were chasing on February 13th. Baker said when a deputy investigating a domestic assault case told the suspect that he was under arrest, the suspect ran off. The suspect went through a fence line across a field. The goat followed the man into a wooded area and eventually flushed him out with the help of another deputy. (laughs) How do you reward a goat? <laughs> oh my God! I've, I've heard of canines. What do you call a goat now? Hey, this is my attack goat. This is my tracking goat. This is my, you know, guard goat. That's your K goat instead of K nine. A K goat. K goat. K G. <laughs> this is our K G man. Good for the goat, man. He's the goat is the goat now. So that's fantastic. Fantastic. That's a first. I've never heard one like that. Yeah. Well, here's another one too. The headline says it all. Man accused of killing lawyer receives a new attorney. Well, first of all, no duh. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Charged in the murder of his former attorney, Miguel Trujillo has been appointed yet another one from the public defender's office. Judy Reed from the public defender's department in Albuquerque had no comment saying that she had just been given the case with no time to review it. Plus, she hasn't had time to arrange Kevlar and appropriate protection. <laughs> you know, I made the last part up. <laughs> that's because she's in there chewing her boss's ass out. What, what do you mean giving me this case? He killed the last guy. But wait oh, a minute. Man. Is, that, is that against the law to kill a defense attorney? 
Now, yeah. Steve. Now, I Steve. It's okay. murder. It's murder. There, I, I there's so. some good good ones out there. But uh, um, while he was walking to district court for a hearing, his this guy attacked his a previous attorney. Uh, I mean, just it, it, small town police blotter. I just thought the, I thought the the headline says it, but this dude. He, he screwed himself, man. He is. Not, <laughs> you want to talk about ineffective, uh, you know, assistance of counsel? That's about to happen. He's out on bond for murder. No, 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 no. He was out on bond for another charge. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. A previous case, um, but now he's charged with an open count of murder, two counts of extorting a witness or witnesses, one ch- charge of tampering with evidence, and one charge of being a felon in possession of a firearm. So, anyway, yeah, he might, he might get a letter from the AG. <laughs> anyway, hey, this this one, this one comes to us. I believe it comes out of China, hmm. but I thought it was funny. That's your favorite Drunk, country, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, they love me. Drunk man wakes up inside shipping container bound for Los Angeles. Have you ever, Steve? Have you ever woken up from a crazy night of drinking inside a sealed shipping container that was just about to embark on a two-week voyage <laughs> to a foreign land? <laughs> then you and Jing Wu should swap hangover stories. The Eastern China resident somehow managed to mistake a giant container for his room at a local bed and breakfast and passed out inside. Waking up the following day, Wu realized his grave error, no shit, and began phoning everyone he knew for help. Unbeknownst to Wu, the container was exactly one hour from being placed on a cargo ship bound for Los Angeles, a two-week trip. However, though, Steve, even after Wu managed to get in touch with the police and conveyed his predicament, he still faced a serious race against the clock as they were unable to identify the container he was in. What oh. container are you in? What does it look like? It's dark. It has four walls. <laughs> now that is drunk. <laughs> you mistake a cargo container for your home? You know, that, when I was in college... That is pro-level drunk. Oh, my God. When I was in college at West Virginia University, I did wake up under a car one time where I'd been a little bit too much to drink, but not, not in a container. Oh, my god! Thank gosh. God the car hadn't started moving. So, Well, what's the rest of the story? Did you find me? It uh, doesn't say. It uh, well, doesn't matter. Survived, I don't so care. It's, well, he must have to have the article written about him. Otherwise, it would have been his obituary. Holy cow. <laughs> That's world-class um, drinking there. Yeah. Well, hey, let's finish this up now with, with another country that likes to drink a lot, which is the British, the English. So, Steve, this what year was it? you got to figure this out. So okay. this comes to us from the Nottinghamshire Guardian. In Nottingham, Nottingham, England. So you have to guess. This is on May 30th. You have to guess what year was it. So I I just started typing in random words. Captain Henry Holden of Bramont, Chief Constable, is hereby appointed Chief Inspector of the local authority of the county. Now, the respective police superintendents, police inspector, and police sergeants for the time being of the said several petty seasonal divisions shall be and are hereby respectively appointed police cattle inspectors mm. for the petty for the uh, for the petty seasonal division so so that the police cattle inspectors do not interfere with the duties of a veterinary inspector in cases where under the act or orders a veterinary inspector is required to be employed so steve <laughs> you Said, I didn't understand I like what most they say. of what you said. I don't either. It's British, man. It's like <laughs> the police inspector and police sergeants being of that said several petty sessional divisions shall be and are hereby respectively appointed police cattle inspectors for that time. So, Steve, you have to guess whether you understand the article or not. You still got to guess what year it is, man. So was okay. it was it May 30th, 1894, May 30th? 
1904 or May 30th, 1884? 84, 94, or 04. That is so strange. Uh, I, I mean, what do they do? They go gather up the cattle if they get outside the fence? That's Freeze. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's just go with 04. That was progressive. 1904. Eh, wrong. 1884. Wow. You're back to your losing streak. Wow. That's, that is, <laughs> I've been given some crappy assignments, but <laughs> not that, that is one. one of them. <laughs> hey, well, let's, let's get into this now. This is going to be episode 39. We are closing in on episode 40, which that one's going to be a good one too. That'll be Bill Sarukas. We're going to talk about his time as a U.S. Marshal. Mm-hmm. But this one was a twofer. This one, we checked some boxes on that we've been wanting to check. This one, actually, I reached out to her because I saw a tweet. This was during the Colleyville incident, which we did a whole Patreon session about. And I saw some of her comments, and it reminded me of a tweet I had bookmarked of hers, and she had written a book. And so I thought, hey, let's bring this young lady on, see if she would do that. Her name is Tracy Walder. Tracy was a sorority girl. And she says so in her own book. She says, I, I was a sorority girl. I was in uh, a sorority at USC, which I kind of dogged her about that because N- Notre Dame's been beating them for a long time. Yeah, I meant to anyway, tell her but, University of South Carolina. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> University of Southern California. So anyway, so Tracy joined the CIA. And this is in the 90s, before any, before 24 was cool, before fighting Al-Qaeda, you know, was big in, in, uh, in the news all the time. And so she joined the CIA. She did a lot of stuff overseas. In fact, we've got two things. Uh, she's going to talk, talk, talk about some of her work with chemical weapons, how some of her information was used and misused in front of the UN. And then she went on to become an FBI agent. Mm-hmm. And so, and then she worked a Chinese espionage case and she wrote a great book and it's called The Unexpected Spy, which you, when you see her, there is no doubt it's The Unexpected Spy. And it says from the CIA to the FBI, uh, my secret life taking down some of the world's most notorious terrorists. I'm sorry, the, the, <laughs> when you're trying to read and stuff, my, I got to go pick up my new eyeglasses. That's why I just yeah, finally got that. my new glasses came in. Yeah. So, uh, but this is cool though, the unexpected spy, uh, and actually it's more like the accidental spy, Steve, because she just, you'll hear part of it, but she was just riding her bike as a junior across campus by a job fair and decided, Hey, I'll throw my resume out. She threw it at the CIA guy. And next thing she knows, got a job. they're calling her up. You know, I mean, you listeners, you know, that uh, most of you already know that when we record this, we only present audio, uh, but we actually can see the people we're interviewing on our videos closed, you know, it's in our little circuit here. And she is the last person I think I've ever seen in my life that I would expect to be a CIA operative. <laughs> FBI agent, I can see that because they do hire some very attractive women. But Tracy's a, a very cute blonde. Uh, she's now a mom. She's a school teacher, which she always wanted to be. Her story truly was unbelievable. And I, I, I got to tell you, before I read her book and before we did the interview, I wasn't real sure about the interview. She turned out to be excellent. I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy listening to her story here. Yeah, this is going to be great. From a spy to the FBI, from the CIA to the FBI, it's the unexpected spy. So, Steve, I got to ask you, if we want to hear about Tracy Walder and the unexpected spy, we got to ask people, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all there is, the game of crimes? This is pretty good, folks. So get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Let's hear from Tracy.
Satellite Beach, Florida. I thought we might just start off this podcast, but you're getting raided, aren't you, Murph? Yeah, I thought I was hidden over here. <laughs> well, what a great way to start off our, our next episode. We were going to bring on uh, Tracy Walden, but apparently we can't right now, be- or Walder, because we can't right now because uh, Steve's getting raided. Are they knocking on the door, demand entry? What's going on, Steve? And well, if I don't look at them, they won't see me, right? Yeah, right. That works. Well, hey, let's get into this podcast before Murph gets taken away in handcuffs. So this this one is unique. Now, you know, we've interviewed everybody across the spectrum from uh, good guys and good girls to bad guys, and and we're working on some bad girls. But this is the first time we get a twofer, which is we get somebody who is in the CIA, and we get somebody who was in the FBI, which crosses a couple of big check marks. We've been working to do that. And so, Tracy, <laughs> you like occupy a place in history in the podcast called Game of Crimes. Tracy, Welcome. Woo-hoo. Thank you for having me. That's that's great to know that I occupy a place in history. I love oh, that. you do. Oh, you. We've been look. Uh, we've been trying to get somebody on from the bureau uh, for a while. We've actually we, we've reached and talked to some folks, but the agency. You know, normally we talk about law enforcement, game of crimes, but what you did and going after that that fits right into what we're looking at because we're going to talk about some of the stuff you did going after terrorists, the weapons of mass destruction. Um, uh, you know, you're driving. Good, good thing you learned how to drive because there's ice in Dallas right now, and it's like it's no fun. <laughs> Jeez. Well, hey, let's do this as we do with everybody. We want to talk about how'd you get started. But before we do this, folks, you got to go to Tracy's site. It's Tracy T R A C Y Walder W A L D E R TracyWalder.com. Got to go get her book. It's called The Unexpected Spy: From the CIA to the FBI: My Secret Life, Taking Down Some of the World's Most Notorious Terrorists. And I'm telling you, when you see her and you see what she's done, you're going to go, ah, no way. You could, yeah, not, not you. You took, <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. I, no way. Our, list, our listeners know we're, we do this on video, but we don't publish the video. And, you know, you're looking at this beautiful young lady, blonde hair, just as cute as she could be. And you're thinking, she's not a spy. And a sorority girl to boot. I mean, it's <laughs> like right. from USC. By the way, when's the last time USC won against Notre Dame, Tracy? Oh, jeez, here we go. Sorry, Tracy. Sorry. <laughs> We had to, oh, now no pouting allowed. You can't, you can't do that. So let's, but, 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 um, I mean, but this is so, again, and reading the book and everything, because it adds a lot more detail. We always do the pre call, get some stuff, but then the book adds a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the most interesting things is you were kind of the accidental spy. I mean, you had no intentions. I mean, really, the CIA wasn't on any radar of yours until you were riding your bike across campus one day, just happened to have a resume in your backpack. How did how did this all start? So you know, I mean, walk us through that. You're going to USC, um, and it's beautiful area. Obviously, you're you know out for a bike ride. How does this whole journey into the CIA start for you? So first, I always like to actually orient the audience to the time frame. So you have to remember. Um, I always tell people, why would the CIA have been on really anybody's radar um, at that point? Because the reality was, is, you know, this is the mid-ish 90s. Um, You know, we didn't have pop culture like we do today, Uh, you know, with shows like Homeland and Criminal Minds and, you know, all of those FBI shows that kind of glamorize it. You know, we didn't, we didn't have any of that. And really my only experience pop culture-wise with the CIA, quite frankly, was, was with, um, oh my gosh, Sean Connery. And you, know, you have to remember that, you know, myself as some 19 year old college woman, why would that be something that was appealing to me? Right. And, you know, we also have to remember too, and I don't mean that in sort of this like trite way. It's just, I always want people to sort of understand why 
I didn't set out to do this was because I didn't really even know um, that that was a, a possibility. And a lot of that was the time frame. I didn't, I didn't grow up in the 2000s, right? You know, surrounded by it all the time in pop culture. And also, you know, in terms of the terrorism aspect, I grew up in the 70s, 80s and 90s. You know, Al-Qaeda wasn't even born until 1989, right? And they didn't start sort of making their splash on the world stage until 95, 94, um, you know, time frame. And so really, I grew up with Oklahoma City, Ruby Ridge, Waco, you know, that's, that was my brand of terrorism, if you will. And so we have to remember the time. I wouldn't have been this person who started my life wanting to work international terrorism at the CIA because the reality is, is the CIA didn't work Al-Qaeda when I was born because it didn't exist. And so I always, I always sort of like to orient people to that in that it wouldn't have been this kind of career path for me. When I first became interested, excuse me, particularly in counterterrorism, really was a product of me growing up um, as a Jewish person uh, in a neighborhood that wasn't predominantly um, Jewish. It is now, but it, it wasn't then. And I realized there was something different. You know, we always had metal detectors and um, police officers, you know, at my, my temple. And I think in the mid eighties, you know, when you're what, like to six or something like that, you don't understand why. Um, but I always knew that, you know, my parents always presented that area of the world as dangerous, right? We couldn't go there. We couldn't travel there. It was dangerous. And I think I always wanted to know why we were a little different. Um, but that didn't really hit home to me until 1997. And I was already in college and, um, I was watching Peter Arnett and Peter Bergen interview, uh, Osama bin Laden. I think it was for CNN. Um, and he, it was the first, interview that bin Laden did with with the West, I guess, you know, Western news station. Um, and it was in that interview, he issued his fatwa against Americans. And then he also issued a declaration of war against Jews. And I think, you know, when you're a self-centered 19-year-old, um, you think, wow, he's coming for me. Like, that that's me. I'm an American Jew. And so I wanted to learn more. If I can interrupt you just a second, can you explain for our listeners what a fatwa is? Oh, sure. I apologize. A, a fatwa is a declaration, a declaration of war, a religious declaration of war. Um, so, you know, the 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 Quran talks a lot about jihad. Um, and I think, you know, we think jihad is, is some terrorist attack, but it's actually not. It's about really a personal war um, within yourself. Um, but obviously, Al-Qaeda has taken that meaning and sort of perverted it, yeah. um, perverted it out. So yes, thank you for asking no, that no. question. Thank you. Um, hey, and Tracy too, I think something's interesting. A lot of people think of bin Laden and go, well, you know, he came out with this fatwa, right? But people forget he used to be a friend of the United States during the Afghanistan war, part of the Mujahideen. He, we were actually supplying weapons and materials to the Mujahideen, including bin mm -hmm. Laden. So he kind of had this from before you were born or before, you know, you knew that was going on. He kind of had this transition from uh, Afghanistan right up to this fatwa. And what a transformation, like you said. So when you saw that, it's like, not only is it impactful, but then you look at the history of where this guy started. I mean, obviously a complete 180. Yeah. And I don't think you know, you have to remember, we didn't really put two and two together, right, until they basically started shooting us with our own weapons when we invaded Afghanistan, you know, in, in 2001. And I think I would like to say we saw that coming, but we didn't see that coming, right? You know, hindsight's always 2020. It's so easy to be this Monday morning quarterback. And, and yes, obviously, in the 80s with the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, 
we our priority uh, was right anti-communism, anti-Russian. So whomever was going after them, right, that's who we were going to support. And so I grew up in a time frame where it was very anti-Russia, anti-anti-communism, like that. That was what I thought the CIA did, and quite frankly, that is what they were doing. Um, you know, at that time, and so uh, I'll just be, you know, uh, terrorism. It just wasn't really on people's minds you know the mujahideen we viewed them as i don't want to say a friend i think that's going maybe a little too far we tolerated them we yeah viewed them, we viewed them as a vehicle upon which to fight the russians with right i think that's how we viewed it um an enemy of my enemy is my friend and so i think that's how how we viewed it and and so i think yeah looking back of course we shouldn't have you know armed them but I think hindsight's twenty twenty. Always, always, and all of these people who have perfect, you know, hindsight, they go, "Well, you should have known this." Well, gee, where were you, Nostradamus, uh, when this was going <laughs> on? Yeah, <laughs> that's one of my my most. I try to always be patient, um, you know, with people like that, but it's difficult sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and especially when there's congressional hearings and other stuff, and everybody gets, you know, pompous and, "Well, you should have known this." Well, okay, great, you know, just saddle up. Skippy, we'll be over here uh, at the Counterterrorism Center. Look forward to your support. Um, well, but but yeah, and so see that's fascinating too. Yeah, so, Go ahead, yeah, keep going. So I guess going back to, and I'm sorry if I'm speaking for too long. The going back to um, sort of getting into the agency again, you know. Obviously, I, I went to what I think is a good school. And, you know, at the time, they did not have counterterrorism classes. It wasn't a thing. Why would that be in anyone's curriculum, right? Um, and so I tried to take—I wanted to learn more, right, about this situation. Really, my turmoil point for the Middle East was always Israel-Palestine, right? That's what I grew up with, particularly as a Jew. Israel-Palestine, Israel-Palestine, Israel-Palestine. That's what I always knew. But obviously— this taught me that there was more. Bin Laden taught me that there was more. And so I started taking, you know, introduction to Islam. I took I took courses in Islam. I'm, I took Middle Eastern history. I took international affairs. I tried to start adding those classes to my repertoire um, at USC, but I there weren't classes available. And there really weren't, I know this sounds strange, but there really weren't jobs to work in, you know, on this counterterrorism mission other than going into the military. And I knew um, my family comes from a long line Um military folks, but I just knew that that probably wasn't, probably wasn't right for me. And so I, one day I had my, um, my sorority sister at, at USC, there's this big kind of thoroughfare, which most colleges have where they do a lot of their, you know, job recruiting events. And contrary to what people think, uh, the CIA does recruit at, at career fair. So does the FBI. It's, it's actually not unusual. I had no interest really in going into this career fair. This was when sort of the dot-com boom was starting to happen. And it really wasn't a job that I was interested in. Um, but, uh, I had my resume on me because I was actually going to go apply to an internship in the Senate. And I had to ride my bike through there to go to USC's. They have, uh, like a little office that you would, would give your resume to. And so, um, I went with my roommate and I saw that there was a table, uh, a CIA table, and there was no one at it. And so I went over and I asked the recruiter, you know, do you work 
counterterrorism. And, you know, his response to me was, you know, it's a very small office, which it was at the time. And he said, we're really recruiting um, Spanish speakers and Russian speakers because most of the turmoil in the world, as, as Steve probably knows, was really in, in Latin America and Russia. And that was their hiring focus. Um, and those were the two areas that, you know, I don't, I didn't dislike them. I just knew I was really interested uh, in counterterrorism. He's like, look, we have a small group. You can give me your resume, but you can't really like pick uh, where you go. The CIA doesn't quite work like that. And so I gave him my resume and just kind of pedaled on my way um, and didn't didn't think anything more of it. Because I know sometimes it can come off as, you know, here's this silly sorority girl who just felt like working at the CIA. And it wasn't really that. That's why I always like to kind of counter back with the the phrase, not in a bad way, just that why would this have been something that was on my radar, uh, you know, given my my interests? I think now if I grew up in, you know, 2005, of course, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And anybody who grows up during that time and later, you know, they, they look at 24 and they go, oh, it's like this, you know, and it's, oh, my God, Jack Bauer. You know, they've got all this fancy stuff. And it's like <laughs> if the public only knew. Uh, so that's cool, though, because it's kind of like I said, you're like the accidental spy. You, I mean, you were just driving through. And had it not been there, who knows, the story might have turned out, you know, if CIA not been there, the story might have turned out different. But as it was, you did. And I think you were a junior, right, when you dropped off your resume? Yes, it was kind of like March-ish yeah. of my junior year. So you're getting ready to go into your senior year. You've got some decisions to make. How long did it take from the time you dropped off your resume till you got that first contact? Oh, gosh, until they called me for an interview, because you you guys probably know that there's hoops that you have to go through. Um, so until I got the first call to basically come in for an interview, just a kind of a light interview, I want to say maybe two and a half, three weeks. Not Well, that's not, not that bad. Long. That's pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> Murph, yeah. they, they weren't sure about Murph. It took him two years to get hired by DEA. Yeah, but look what they got. <laughs> and they want their money back. Uh, <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> right. So after that three weeks, so because uh, it, it's one of those things, who do you go to to prepare for an interview like that? It's just kind of like, okay, right. I just got to show up, right? So what goes on? So, so one of my oh, I'm sorry. One of my sorority sisters um, was actually quite helpful. Um, she had um, interned, so she was a year older than I, so she would have been just about to graduate, and she had interned in. The Senate, it's like foreign policy, not the committee. It was like policy making. I don't remember exactly what it was that she was doing. And so I went to her and I, I said, you know, what are some resources that I should be, you know, preparing for? Because obviously there was no one that could really help me with that. And and she told me, she said, read The Economist cover to cover. Just read that thing cover to cover. Read The Economist cover to cover. And so I did. I got all the back issues of it, you know, that I possibly could, um, you know, and that's really what I did uh, to prepare. And my dad, you know, is a huge foreign policy buff. He would not quiz me, but we would talk through issues, you know, there are issues going on at the time in the Knesset and Israel. And so we would talk about sort of the issues du jour, um, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's what I did. That's really all I did to prepare for the interview. Wow. So, so what's that first interview like? What kind of things do they, what, what are they looking for in that first interview? I don't know, right? You know, I can't, that's the honest answer to that question. I can't, I can't tell you what they were looking for because I don't know what they were looking for. Obviously I don't have, I didn't at the time, I didn't have the critical languages that they were looking for, right? I don't speak Spanish. I don't speak Russian. Um, 
it's hard to know. I don't know what they were looking for um, in, in that interview. I'm sorry. Was it encouraging at all? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> I mean, it was just very matter of fact, right? You, they ask you, um, you had to submit a writing sample. So I had done that. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I don't even remember exactly what they had asked me, but I don't remember it being like, oh, you're so great. You're so awesome. You know, like, I don't remember leaving there thinking, oh, I definitely have this job. I just left there thinking like, okay, that was fine. I didn't bomb it. I didn't. And, and that was sort of how they kept themselves. So yeah. I don't. Yeah. They don't want to tip their hand know, or let you know if you're doing no. good or not. Um, yeah. It wasn't. They didn't tell me I was doing. I didn't leave there thinking I just so bombed this or I didn't know anything. I was talking. About, I knew I knew the questions they were asking me, mm -hmm. but no one was like, yeah, yeah. You know, when I was talking. So it wasn't. Yeah. Very cold. Very <laughs> cold interview. Clinical. Clinical. Yeah. Just, there you, you know, go. just the That's facts, ma'am. Just give, come in. But you know, what's <laughs> interesting too is in your book, you also talk about too, the paper you submitted was one that you kind of wrote an argument about why communism works for China. And I think they thought you were saying communism is a great thing, which would have been very antithetical to the agency, right? But you were just arguing a point about inside China, communism works for yes. them and here's the issue. Yeah, they, they actually liked my paper. Um, I remember my dad being so pissed off at me because that's what I had sent, um, you know, to them. But I thought it was a good paper and I had actually gotten a really good grade um, on it uh, because my professor thought, you know, that I had looked at the world not in an ethno-nationalist point of view, right? I had realized that democracy is like not this one-size-fits-all approach. Like, clearly, I don't want to live in China. I love living in America. I think that democracy is the only way to go. But I think what I had started to realize about, because I had, had to take a Chinese foreign affairs class um, when I was there, and that was the argument was, you know, should China, uh, you know, be a democracy? And I think they got from my paper, and maybe that's something that helped me, right? That I was willing to look outside of my own mm -hmm. box, right? And and think about other countries and what works best well, that, which them. that'll serve you later too, once you're in the agency, because you can't just have these blinders on. You got to take the blinders off and you got to look at it. And the real question, you know, the thing I tell people too, the problem isn't the problem. The problem isn't the way you think about the problem. The real problem is the way our adversaries think about the problem. Can you get into their eyes and look at it the way they look at it? And that's where you get great analysis from, right. which we will... I could not agree with you more, and I don't think we do enough I think about I don't think we teach enough critical thinking. I don't think... I think we, right. everybody wants to be safe and, well, I just have my point of view. It's like... One of my best classes no. I ever took in high school was debate, and it made you, you'd be arguing for something in the morning and arguing against it in the afternoon, and you had to do it with equal vigor, you know, and if you wanted to win the tournament. And I always get questions, you know, what's the CIA looking for? What are they hiring for? And the thing is, is like, I can't really answer that question because I think they really care a lot about those those soft skills that you're yep. talking about, Morgan, which is, you know, critical thinking. Um, because the reality is, is they can train me to shoot a gun. It's it's not that hard, right? They they can train me to to learn a language if that's what I need to do, right? The, those are things I don't want to make light of them. Clearly, they're, they take training, but you can train someone to do that. I'm not sure that you can really train someone, um, you know, to to think critically quickly. You either kind of have that or you, or you right. don't. And I think I, not to sound egotistical, I do think I have that. I think that's something I've always had. And I think that was helpful, um, you know, writing my paper about China. Again, I wasn't saying communism is great. I don't think it is. But, um, you know, I was willing to step out of my comfort zone. And look right. at it. 
Well, that's cool. Uh, and like I say, just it's just which is I think we need more of. I think we've got to step back because that gives you a whole different perspective. But as 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 we move along, um, you obviously moved through the process. Um, you're into your senior year now. When do things start getting real with the CIA to where you go? Oh man, this I I may have an opportunity here. Um, so it wasn't actually in my senior year that that happened. It was kind of the summer. Okay, the summer between um, uh, my junior and senior year. So that was when I, I passed. Um, the interview process. And I'm going to apologize for that because we were bored last night and that's a six and a half year old. Um, (laughs) um, So uh, we, so I passed the interview in, I guess what, March, April ish. Um, And then really about a month or two later. So this would have been maybe July of my, my summer between my junior and senior year, that's when I went to do all the stuff, right? The, the testing, the polygraph, the psychology, you know, all of that. And so I think it was, would have been probably, you know, August ish when I was realizing like, I probably have a, excuse me, a shot at this. Well, when you were, before you stopped and and dropped off your, your uh, resume there to the CIA booth, what were you working towards in college? What was your dream job? Yeah, my dream job was to be a high school history teacher. Wow, that's a little bit different from uh, <laughs> being an operative with the CIA. Huh? <laughs> Talk about a 180. <laughs> I don't know. What are you doing now, uh, Tracy? I'm a high school history teacher. There you teacher. go. Yeah, there's never time. There's always time to go get your dream job. Hey, but let's talk for a minute about one of the fun things you did, and we talked about this pre-call because we've all had to, uh, you know, one form or fashion, go through a lot of scrutiny. But the CIA, it's a, it elevates it to a new, new art when you have to do your lifestyle polygraph, because it's not just a quick, like what they call either a counterintelligence polity or just a regular poly. Have you stolen anything? Have you done this? In a lifestyle poly, they are <laughs> looking for everything. And that was, having probably never been through a polygraph before, that had to be quite the experience. Yeah, it's funny because obviously I had to do the FBI one too, even though I had a clearance. <laughs> well, the, the FBI and the CIA don't immediate. share anything in their name except the letter I, according to Dennis Miller. But, but the FBI one was what, like 40 minutes? It was so easy, right? I just remember being like, this is fantastic. And, you know, that the one at the CIA was for me eight hours. And really it was because I hadn't done anything. Um, you know, I. You had was, a fake ID. Admit yeah, it to everybody. You had a fake ID. You were a. <laughs> criminal. I drink, I drink underage, you know, like I did the normal stuff that I think people probably Who in college does have it? Yeah. done or did do. I mean, but I had never used drugs ever and I still haven't. Um, it just wasn't like, I'm not a pious person up on my, you know, preaching that stuff. It just wasn't interesting to me. Um, I don't like to be out of control. Like that's just who yeah. I am and wasn't interesting to me. Um, but the, <laughs> The polygrapher just like really couldn't get over that, I guess. <laughs> and I guess that's pretty rare. Most people have tried like marijuana or things like that. And so I think he, when you keep getting asked the same question over and over and you know that the same answer is going to be no all the time, you, your body like does stuff. Yeah, it's it exasperating. Gets um, it gets mad. Yeah. And so you do elicit a response. And so he kept telling me that, you know, it was coming back as inconclusive, you know, because I was eliciting this response. So I had to come back the next day. I almost quit at that point. Um, But my recruiter. And that's the trick too. They always do that. They come back in and they say, they don't say you failed the test. They just say, well, it's inconclusive. We have a couple areas we want to talk to you about. Yeah. 
Now, and then yeah. it's this come to Jesus moment. Come clean with us. Tell us what it is. What's yeah. on your chest <laughs> that you want to talk about? Nothing. They don't believe that. It's like nothing. I'm like you, no dope, no drugs ever. And it's like, are you sure? Yeah, I'm pretty damn sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah, take my hair. To the CIA. I mean, you know, I was, just wasn't. Like, I totally admitted I drank. I totally admitted, like, I admitted all of well, that. And the biggest, no... the biggest issues with polygraphs with a lot of people is they lie about stuff and get caught lying about stuff that would otherwise not preclude them from getting a job in the first place. So if they just told, what they want to know is, will you be truthful? Will you yeah. tell us the truth? That's it. Absolutely. Right. I can, I can, That's it. And I was telling the truth. I, I can't imagine oh, no, go going speak. through an eight-hour polygraph. Holy cow. Not once, but you had to come back the, again, right? Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thankfully, you've suffered through that, and it's kind of like, it's kind of nice... It's kind of nice to get that feeling when you come back and say, okay, we've passed you. You know, you're clear. You can you can move on now. But by that time, you had probably spent, what, 12 hours in the chair getting polygraphed? Yeah, I fell asleep <laughs> in the chair. <laughs> I talk about that in my book. The polygrapher stepped out. Uh, this was in the second one because I didn't sleep that night between, you know, when I had to come back the next day. Mm-hmm. I was very upset. I think I was very upset because... You, I mean, I'm sure anyone would be, you know, I didn't lie and these people are accusing me, right? You know, and so, and, you know, you talk to the other recruits that are there, right? And they're like, oh yeah, I've done all the time. And you, I almost, I was very, I don't know if I can say this, I was pissed because I was, you know, I'm a, I had mm-hmm. never done these things and I, here I am being, and, you know, they smoke pot all the time. It was, I was mad. I was very mad. And so I didn't sleep. My recruiter called at like 2 a.m. You know, I was, and so, yeah. Wow. Your recruiter called you at 2. What if you were asleep? Well, because the recruiter, um, I, what did I do? I think he called me at the end of that day. He was so great. He really Mm -hmm. like shepherded me through the process. And I want to say he called that night. It was like maybe 9 or 10 a.m., you know, like just to, to see how everything was going. And I just, was like, I'm, I'm done. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. I'm not doing this. This is not a place I want to work. You know, and I, I explained to him everything and he became very upset, not with me, but I think he was upset uh-huh. that I was upset. And so, um, you know, he called again, it was maybe like 11 and I was sitting outside like by the pool, just read like in my own head. I was just really upset. And he talked to my mom who was with me, um, you know, uh, and my mom, you know, was telling him how upset I was and she was upset too. And, uh, you know, I talked to him again and I'm like, nope, I'm not doing this. I'm done. I, my mom's booked a flight. Like we're, we're going home tomorrow. Then he called again at about two, and I think uh, he would convince now, me. Is this wow. the same recruiter same. from the campus that you ran into, or somebody different? Same one? Okay. Yeah, he shepherded me through. Well, that's the whole that's process. that's that's good to know too, because it's really one of those things. You know, if, when when you've never applied for the CIA before, you don't know what it entails, so you really need somebody to kind of be there. And it right. seems like had he not been there, I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's yeah. still like that. Mm-hmm. I have absolutely no idea. But, well, you, um, you know. He Being just, somewhat of a really... conspiracy theorist, it makes me wonder, were they trying to keep you awake so that you'd be very fatigued the second day and see if you change <laughs> Steve, your answers? Steve, Steve, <laughs> Look, I mean, that could have totally been the case, too. It wouldn't have bothered right. me because my answer would have right. changed. They would have just had to wake right? you up between like, you know, your power naps oh. in order to do the polygraph. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so and now let's start getting into this, too, because... It's obvious because of the book, we know you got into the CIA. So you get, when, when do you get that notification that says, thank you, Tracy, 
you now, we want to offer you a job. You know, when does that come in? That was um, November-ish, December-ish of my senior year. Now, how does the timing work out with you finishing school and then going to the agency? How does how does the timing work out? It was what's called a conditioner, conditional offer of employment, which was contingent upon me graduating high school. Okay. Or college, excuse me. <laughs> and um, I, gosh, I want to say I graduated and started like three weeks later, somewhere around there. I where'd can't you, remember the exact. Yeah. Where'd yeah. you first go to when you started? Were you still in California or did you have to come out to Virginia? Oh, I went to CIA headquarters. Okay. Had you ever been in Virginia or that area before? Um, yes, because I interned in the Senate. Oh, okay, mm. cool. Yeah. What kind of what kind of stuff did you work on in the Senate? Um, so I was on the communications committee, um, which was so with CIA at not CIA with USC. USC used to actually have a physical USC campus in DC, which was really, really cool. Um, and so you don't get to pick. They just like put you in these, inter- whatever they have like available. And I got so lucky because I ended up getting to work for at the time, I think it was the Senate minority leader, uh, which was Tom Daschle. And then the mm-hmm. whip was, was Reed. And I was so lucky because he's a Democrat and the president was a Democrat at the time. And so I got to go to the state of the union. I got to go to all these like really cool things, right? That, you know, normally <laughs> it didn't matter my political persuasion. It was just cool to like be a part of it. Right. I just got lucky, right. um, in the internship that I was placed in. Um, and so I did a lot of, uh, communications work, which was also cool because I got to, you know, write interview questions for senators and, um, I got to meet so many of them because they would just come through right the office, um, which was, it was a cool internship. It wasn't what I wanted to do. Obviously I'm not a communications person. I think it was just like where USC had openings <laughs> right? Uh, for internships. You know, some people were in the White House mail room. Um, some people, you know, it, it just, you just went where they put you and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. But well, still, that, what a, what a great experience. Go ahead, Steve. That was awesome. that would, I loved it. That, I, that in my mind, that would just suck getting stuck in the mail room. <laughs> you know, it was funny because all of those students thought that they had such a better internship than I, because they were all at the white house. Right. And they're like, we're at the White House. This is great. You, it sucks to be you. You have to go work for this like senator from D- the Dakotas. And, you know, like people were giving me a hard time. And I have to say, I kind of bought into that. Right. Initially, mm. because I was like, yeah, this sucks. I want to be yeah. in the White House. But then I realized real quick, like you guys are all in the mailroom. I get to go to the State of the Union. I get to meet and interview all of these senators. I ended up with like the really cool internship. It just didn't seem flashy. Um, like theirs did, if that makes any sense. Oh yeah. Yeah. I had a buddy of mine in the air force worked at the Pentagon and he used to say, I'm over 10,000 people. He was on like on the fifth floor. That's all it is. It's all on your perspective, right? He had no real rank, but, um, (laughs) I'm over 10,000. I'm over 10,000. Literally Literally, he was. Yeah. Um, so, but the dates now are going to be very important for a, a lot of what you get involved with. So when do you, what, what, what year do you graduate school? I graduated in May of 2000. And then you come on board because uh, what we're leading up to is, as you guys know, too, September 11th, you know, a year, uh, just a little over a year from then, things are going to change. How, how does it get started for you? So you, you come on board, you go to CIA headquarters. 
Um, and I know a lot of the stuff, and folks too, the other thing too is uh, Tracy's book had to go through the publication review board. So there's certain things she can talk about and can't. Mm-hmm. And if we ask her something she can't talk about, she's not trying to be uh, obsequious. You know, that's a big word, Murph. You know, she's not trying to be dodgy or it's just that there's certain things she can't talk about. So if we ask you something, just say, yeah, can't talk about that. We got it. Um, but Tracy, Tracy, if you'll excuse me a minute, we, we communicate in sign language. I've got a message from Morgan. <laughs> I can't see it, Steve. It's blurry, very blurry. Um, so as you, but as you get started, what, what's it like getting started? So you come out, um, to Virginia. Um, now do you live in the Virginia area, DC? Where are you living at? Um, I was living in like Old Town, Alexandria ish. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Very nice area. So, how, how how does it start out for you? So, you, you start to the CIA, you know, um, what kind of things do you get? You know, I know that there's no normal way things get started. How do things get started for you? There is in a way, right? So, um, at, like I had mentioned before, at CIA, you don't get to say, you know, I'm going to the CIA. This is the department I want to work in, and this is what I want to do. Like, no, it doesn't work like that. Right. Um, and I don't think it still works like that either. Uh, you go where they put you. And I think I thought I figured I would be working something Latin American or Russian, right, because that was their focus. And I think the way I viewed it was, okay, I'll get put in those divisions, and I'll stay at CIA, and I'm sure I can— transfer into, you know, the counterterrorism group if I want to in a few years. Like, that was kind of what I assumed, I guess, simply because I knew what their hiring focus was. Um, But I, and I knew kind of what directorates I wouldn't end up in. I knew I wasn't going to be in science and technology. That's not my background. I knew I wasn't going to be an analyst because I don't have a specific higher degree, I guess, in a subject matter. I don't have another foreign language that I speak. And so I had a feeling that I would end up in the DO, which is the Directorate of Operations, the dark side, whatever you want to call it, just because I had that broad uh, liberal arts degree. And that's a lot of people that work in the DO do. Um, And what I was most surprised about, though, was that I worked in the counterterrorism center. Um, And so, you know, it was small <laughs> at that time. It was not this massive behemoth that took over really all of CIA headquarters and then outbuildings later. Um, and so my job until, you know, I went to the farm was to, it, it, CIA works different than, you know, like DEA or FBI. You don't go to training first. You um, spend some time at headquarters first. And so I was. I'm sorry, you, you mentioned the farm. Can you tell us what you're talking about? The CIA training facility. There you go. Which may or may not exist somewhere in Virginia, uh, <laughs> a military installation. But hey, look, it's available on the Google. If you go to the Google, you can find I'm out. Right. <laughs> right. You can find out lots of stuff. But um, you, you go to, and actually, it's, it's funny too, because uh, there's so much history just even around the CIA, you know, as, as it got started, um, where it started, you know, uh, out of OSS. Uh, Alan Dulles, in fact, a lot of the areas out here, Dulles Airport stuff, named after Alan Dulles, who is one of the directors uh, of Central Intelligence. Now, do you get do you get to complete your entire training program, or do things happen where you get pulled back out? You know, how does that work between the time you do that and the time that you actually start? You know, as we you know might say, get really start getting into it, getting into the work. So that's going to be <clears throat> a tough question to answer because mine's going to be different uh, because September 11th happens. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's kind of what I was getting at, because, I mean, it's in terms of 
had that not happened, there would have been a kind of a standard training program you can complete it. So what happens to you? I mean, you talk about it in the book, and I know people will pick up the book, um, but talk about it. You know, that day, it's like a lot of other folks. I was in uh, the Reagan building. We're supposed to go be going to the Pentagon. Everybody's day kind of starts out that way. How does your day start out um, yes. on September 11th? I go into CIA headquarters. I usually worked um, I like morning. So I started work at like 630, probably 615. So I was already at CIA headquarters well into my day, I guess, you know, by because what it happened two and a half hours uh, later. So I was already well into my day. I was at the counterterrorism center looking at training camps um, in Afghanistan and um, everyone's always surprised uh, to hear this, but I did not know um, that the first plane uh, had hit the World Trade Center. And you have to remember CIA doesn't have open internet. You know, you don't bring your phone in <laughs> to headquarters. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And so, um, yes, we had sort of these large TVs, you know, in our offices, but we didn't turn them on all the time, right? Like why? I mean, it just wasn't, you know, anything. And so I did not know, um, that the first plane had hit until I had a friend who worked in an unclassified outbuilding. So they had open internet and he had his phone with him. And so he called me on like my open line. Um, obviously I picked it up because it was my friend and I thought, you know, I picked it up and he said, you, you guys have to turn on your office TV. So, you know, plane just hit the world trade center. And so that's when we, we did. And then we saw the second plane hit. So yeah, not that, that exciting or interesting. <laughs> that's no, but, but it's, but but you knew, though, I mean, a lot of people saw the first plane hit and they go, oh, must have been an accident. And everybody's a lot of people going, yeah, maybe, maybe not. But everybody knew instantly the minute the second plane hit. Yeah. The first plane I thought was a, was an accident, to be honest with you. That's what I thought, too. Um, there had been an incident a month or so before where um, was a pitcher or baseball player was flying a Cessna and he hit um, an apartment building actually in New York, um, like a high rise apartment building. And he died and his son died. And to be honest with you, that's what was on my mind. That's what I thought, right. Is that someone, uh Oh, someone did this again in their, you know, private plane. Um, obviously when the second plane hit, I saw that it was not a Cessna, right. <laughs> that was when I realized, okay. But again, I didn't have any, it's, it's nice talking to you guys because you have an understanding of how it works. But a lot of times people just can't get over the fact that I wouldn't have known, you know, that the first plane hit. But when you work in a skiff or a, a, a compartmented um, information, you don't have access to things that I think people think that you do. Yeah. And if you accidentally bring something into a skiff that's not supposed to be there, you generally don't get to leave with it. Yeah, I mean, you that's taking classified material out and that that's a crime. And so we all took that really seriously. Like no one brought their their stuff in ever. So Yeah. Yeah, and you, you have to do that no matter what agency you are cuz that is that's yeah. one thing that will get you <laughs> Well, and, and I can tell you too. I think yeah. I was telling you this, Steve, too. I was doing stuff uh, we're, for the anti-terrorism assistance program over in Turkey, and we they actually were going to take us into the skiff because we're walking down the hallway, and there was a place to put your phones. And mm -hmm. I was on it. I wasn't looking, and my foot started to go over the threshold, and I went, whoa. I kind of, you know, like, tilt back because if I'd gone into that skiff with my phone, I never would have got my phone back because it's like once it's in there, you know, it belongs. And so I, I like the way that you put that, too, because a lot of people think it's just cavalier. No, you know, people take their oath seriously. They say, no, you can't I do this. Very seriously, and I still do. Absolutely. You know. If you're not going to take it serious, don't take the Yeah, oath. don't take it. 
I, I agree. And all my colleagues did too. No one was really cavalier at all, you know, about those kinds of things. Uh, we always left our phones in the car, you know, I mean, it was just. And it's not like TV. You see on TV, you see people in CIA headquarters yeah. walking around with a cell phone. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> there we go. Another myth, another Hollywood myth busted. Hey, um, I actually had the chance a few times to run into Michael Schuer, who for a while was running the Alex station, you know, the Bin Laden issue station. Did you, is that, were you, was that uh, something that you were involved with him too at that time? So Mike used to call me Stacy all the time. Um, see, see, <laughs> crazy minds think alike here. Um, so yeah, Mike, um, Mike was an, on the analytical side. Um, so Mike's an analyst, and then I was on the ops side. So he was in our skiffs were together, and there was just a door that we would like walk through. Um, but yes, I worked with Mike. A lot. Yeah. Hey, and I think that's a good thing too, to kind of let people know uh, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, the structure back in the day you had before the director of national intelligence, the DCI, like George Tenet, he was, he was the top intelligence dog. He, he's the one, you know, the, the presidential daily briefings, if there were questions, you'd had the DCI in, and you were kind of broken out right into what they called the DDO, you know, directorate of operations, and then DDI intelligence, right? There were kind of the two big arms of, of CIA at that time. And DS&T, which is science and technology. Mm -hmm. And actually, I had some buddies that worked uh, in the disguise unit, too. So uh, we ended up down in Bogota, and they had just retired. Actually, they had just retired before 9-11 out of the agency. And then the agency, when they were plussing up, brought a lot of these folks back, you know, in terms of the cadre. But um, so anyway, so you're working this stuff. How, how does what what kind of things, how does life change for you at that? Did you think your life changed at that point um, in terms of like now? what I'm doing and where I'm going is going to change? Or did you not know enough at that point? Or was there not enough information to know how things were going to unfold for you personally in terms of where you were going to be in the next two to three years? Uh, so I knew that right away that my life would change because about a week before September 11th, um, myself and then two other guys in my office were briefed into a program. Um, and we were told, you know, that we wouldn't be participating in that program until probably the late spring um, of 2002, but they wanted, you know, us to get up on it and, <clears throat> and all of that. And I knew right away when September 11th happened that we were going to be working on that program uh, like instantaneously. And, and we did. And I'll bet your work hours really changed too, didn't they? Sure did. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Those are the kind of things where the U.S. taxpayers are truly getting value for the money oh. they spend on your salaries. <laughs> no, there were, I mean, there were people sleeping in the office. We had an episode, two of my buddies were uh, detective constables with New Scotland Yard, the counterterrorism command over there, and we talked about the 7705 train bombings. People slept at their desks. They slept underneath their desks. They slept at the office, mm -hmm. you know, while they're working yeah, stuff. Thoughts and things like that that are Yeah, CIA the op tempo those. was pr pretty high at that point. So... Um, but, you know, th there's a lot of things around that. So how does, what do you start doing now? In other words, there's so much stuff. So just, just start taking us on a journey now. Like this, 9-11 uh, happens. You start, at, you're in the office at some point, but then at some point you start getting out of the office, as they say. So you go from being, you know, at headquarters to now doing things around the globe. So start walking us through that path, how you get there. Um, well, so I first, I started working that program, which is um, in my book, the chapter is called The Vault. Um, it's frustrating because I'm not allowed to to name the program. Um, but I was the first person to work on it, which is kind of weird now that I think about it. Um, it I'm trying to sort of talk around what it was, but, um, you know, it was really the tip of the spear in terms of uh, the work mm -hmm. that we were 
that the CIA was doing um, and, you know, trying to catch bin Laden, um, helping with the invasion of Afghanistan, um, really tiny room, uh, president in there all the time, uh, tenant in there all the time. Um, and so I did that for four months or so. Um, that was, that was a lot. You know, when I think about what I was doing, that was a lot. Hey, talk about that for a second, though, because it's really neat in the book. Um, there are these, I mean, the, the major, obviously the major power players, anybody who's anybody in government from the president on down is coming there. Are they coming there because of the unique kinds of information you're working with, or is it more just like moral support, or is there is there a reason for them to be in the room, like you say, the small room with you? Mm, they definitely weren't there for moral support. You know, no one's there for moral support. <laughs> no one cares how you feel. <laughs> I, um, I think that except that, no. you said George Tennant would bring donuts and coffee to you. I mean, Tennant would, but he was also our direct right boss. Like, I think he had a duty to care about how you know we felt. Right. I think like members of the administration, they weren't bad. They were all really great. It's just that I don't think they were there to check on like how I was feeling, um, like emotionally. I think they were there because it was a new toy. Um, and like I said, it was sort of this like tip of the spear. Um, it was brand new, which I know now, you know, we're so used to hearing about this program. Um, it's not so cool, but at the time it was super novel and they weren't there to tell mm -hmm. us what to do. I think they were just there to see what we were doing. I think that was the big, big thing. How was your, how was your, how was it meeting the president during this time? Because obviously there's a lot of things, you know, on his mind. You've got the response to the attacks, obviously Iraq, which is what we're going to talk about. Weapons of mass destruction will be coming up. Um, what was it like meeting the president under those circumstances? You know, it's hard to say I didn't really carry on a conversation with him because you have to understand he's coming in there while I'm on duty doing my job. And so, um, you know, for me to turn around and have a conversation with him and get to know him, it wouldn't have been a feasible thing to do. Um, you know, he was always kind when he was in there. He'd ask us good questions and we would answer them. But I didn't get to know him, you know, on like a personal level, I guess. You know, he was always gracious. He was always kind. But... <laughs> No, no, that's cool. I mean, that's what I mean. That's that's good to know because a lot of times some people want to come in, they become disruptive as opposed to even if you're the the, no, the biggest, no you know, the head cheese. Yeah, um, that's good. With the work that we were doing, I, I mean, folks like like Bush, Rice, Rumsfeld, none of them were disruptors, right? They just would sit there if they had a question, like a legitimate question, they would ask it. There was one senator um, who was just a pain, and I they kicked him out. Um, you know, the, because the work we were doing. <laughs> But the work we were doing was so tactical. And so I think there was just like zero tolerance for it. It was like, if you're going to come in here, you will shut up. <laughs> and if you have a specific question, fine, but we're not here to entertain you, right? Like we're not here right. to, and so I think that was really kind of how it was. Who kicked that Senator out? Tenant. Good for him. <laughs> Good for Good. him. Cause that could be a career move. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you want to make sure you have the right authority to do it. Yeah, you're at the right level. Um, so, again, like I said, folks, you got to read the book about the vault and stuff. You kind of, if you've been in the business for a while, you kind of get ideas, but we're not going to talk about them. But again, it's like one thing I've always been impressed, though, with CIA, it's like they created the first 
d- digital pager before. You know, basically, the some of the stuff they did early on was the original would have been called an iPhone. Their technical capabilities were always like five to six generations ahead of what you was thought was possible. So that was always the cool stuff is finding out, especially when you read a lot of the books about tradecraft and what the CIA did and and the Office of Technical, uh, you know, was it Technical Services? You know, the science did all the all the people who had no constraints on thinking. It's like how do we solve this problem? So you guys get you guys get to work and how long do you stay in headquarters before they start having you now go out into the field? A few months. Um, probably not until I was um detailed to the the counterterrorism center's weapons of mass destruction group. That's really when I started going out into the field. Um and you talked about too is that in the book because of 9-11, it interrupted a lot of things. You were just getting little bits of training, stuff that you needed, right, to go out into the field or to do stuff, right? By the time you went out into the field, where were you along that progression of getting all the training you need? Did you ever get a chance to finally complete all of it, or was it just kind of in— Yeah, oh, I was done by that point. Oh, okay. What yeah, was that? Was, uh, you're getting ready to—you're yeah. asking the same question. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you included some of your stories, and we've read the book for our listeners here. But we, you know, we want Tracy to, uh, Stacy, Tracy, sorry, Tracy, come on. <clears throat> we want we want you to tell us about your experiences rather than us telling what you went through. And that's what Game of Crimes is all about. And so, this, and this prepared you funny... for driving on the Beltway in Alexandria exactly. and other places. <laughs> <laughs> she has some pretty funny stories. The training that I went through, I can't talk about all of it. The only chapters that you see uh, are the chapters that that they cleared, which is obviously very frustrating. Um, So, sorry. Uh, The only one that they allowed me to talk about was uh, Crash and Bang. So that's why you don't see um, a lot of Mm -hmm. the training in there, because they just wouldn't. I mean, those are chapters I had to take out. Right. Um, but that, but that one they allowed in um, because it was published in two other books. And that's the one we want to um, hear about because it's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> well, there were some other ones that were just as great. But yeah. I, you can't talk about them. And they are redacted out, of, especially um, if you read the Kindle version, too. It doesn't have the redaction lines, but it has all of these like little tildes things. So you can see areas to where. Sorry. No, no. Yeah. But you know what? I know. I think this. No, you don't have to apologize. I don't. Yeah. A lot of people want to know, but there's also other folks, I think, like me or whatever, said, look, I want to know, but I don't want to know, because I, if I know, that means our adversaries know and our enemies know. Right. You know, I don't, right. I don't want yeah. them to know. Well, and I appreciate I appreciate you guys a lot. Um, it's not—but you have to remember, I talk to so many different mm-hmm. audiences, right? And so you guys understand, right, where, I, where I'm coming from, and I do appreciate that. But a lot of people do feel like they're entitled, right, to— um, have that information, which is so absolutely. Um, but yeah, the 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 crash and bang. Um, of course, because it does kind of to your point, it makes it seem like I didn't finish training, but I did. But I could only put that chapter right. in, right? So it's. I know. I'm. I'm. I'm super no, sorry. The, and the cool thing um, about the redactions. I think it's a great marketing tool because it just makes you want to know more. You want to continue reading, like, okay, let's see yeah, if they slipped up and told me what true. country should go into, or yeah. <laughs> That's true. I didn't think about it that way. So the um the 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 training I can talk about is the module that was crash and bang. So it's you know learning how to drive your car um, defensively, which is which is what we all want to do at DC. <laughs> I just stay off the beltway. That's my defensive driving. Stay the hell off the beltway. But look, the, the 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 crash and bang. It's you know the other thing too is when you go through the emergency vehicle operations course. This was actually something new. You what you were getting taught was stuff they'd never really used to teach in emergency driving or stuff like that. 
Yeah, I mean, there was it because you, you talk about the pit maneuver, the pursuit intervention technique, and that's where the bang, you know, the crash and bang comes from. Because you're getting chased around the track, you don't want to make it sound, you don't want to make it too easy, right? But it is, it is a you've got to you got to do the maneuver right because you just it's not just more tap, you got to drive through, you know. And so let's talk about that because now the reason I ask this is you by this time you already had sucky luck with your cars because one car burned <laughs> one car yeah. got towed while you were in for the interview right I mean you you had three cars that you had issues with and now they're giving you another car but this one you can go out and crash and do stuff with in fact the second car right was it the um the Acura the one that they stole and basically launched themselves on and got hurt in the the, the people no that was my uh, Honda Accord Honda Accord okay yeah yeah. Um, no, the, they give you a, the farm is a big place, right? So they give you a car. Everyone has the same kind of car. It was, I think it was like a Ford Focus, you know, something like that, um, to drive around. And uh, they want you to learn how to drive stick. The the crash and bang, um, you know, you there's a couple different things that they're doing. They're trying to obviously teach you like situational awareness, right? Which is uh, they'll go and ambush you on your way, you know, to your dorm or, you know, to the cafeteria, whatever. Um, so there's that side of it. And then there's a side that I think Maria was talking about before, which is the track, right? More the kind of clinical side, right? Learning how to do that pit maneuver, learning. Um, so there was kind of both of those, those things. And I personally loved it. I thought it was really fun. Um, you know, I think some, I remember some of the folks being scared, oh, you know, to do these That's things. the fun part. It really is. Um, but yeah. Now, didn't, uh, I mean, tell us about, did you, uh, have to experience crashing into a wall? Yep. Mm-hmm. Driving straight into, how fast were you going when you hit the wall? I don't remember. That's a really good question. I, I honestly, that I'd be remiss if I just kind of made something up, um, but that was not in the Ford Focus. That was in a different car. We didn't really destroy the Ford Focuses. The those were to sort of the situational awareness. More happened in those. When we went to the um track or, you know, the wall or those kinds of things, those were in vehicles that clearly had seen, you know, some better <laughs> And did you you mentioned having to drive a stick? Did you know how to drive a stick? I did not know how to <laughs> Yeah, you hopped in the vehicle and you went, uh-oh. <laughs> I was of the generation that really would have been one of the first to, like, not drive sticks, yeah. right? So, um, yeah, I, I did not know how to drive had, a stick. I had a, little, a few little parking issues there, huh? Well, I still never really learned how to reverse, yeah. you know, <laughs> to clear ass in, you know, to a parking spot. So I would just, like, kind of gun it up over the, the parking. <laughs> hey, you came up with a solution. Think there goes you know, that critical thinking. If I can't do it this way, I'll just do it another way. Absolutely, it is what it is. Uh, you look, I learned how to you know drive it regularly. Right. That, that wasn't the issue. It's just for some reason I could not get the I guess reverse situation. Well, and and tell us too about the ambush. The uh, when the instructor's in the car with you one day and you're going to mm-hmm. a, a different location. Just give us a a quick synopsis on that. Yeah. So I think, you know, something's up because the instructor is in the car with you, right? It doesn't take like a rocket scientist to figure that out because typically you're not driving with an instructor in the car. I loved all of my instructors. I mean, see, I truly learned so much from them. They were amazing guys. Um, And so I had the instructor in the car and they do kind of walk you into a situation. A lot of them, Steve, were were Latin America guys, you guys that had been um, and then were 
at the farm to do training afterwards. And so um, they sit in the car with you and, you know, they're like, oh, it looks like there's a roadblock up there, right? You know, and so you're at the roadblock and you have to figure out what you're going to do when someone comes up to your car with a SIM gun, right? And so figuring that out. So what'd you do? I just gunned it. <laughs> so obviously well, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, at yeah. least he's not standing in front of you. Uh, well, no, he comes to the side. You know what? Quite frankly, even if he was, I would have gunned it. Good for you. <laughs> I viewed that as I viewed that as a him problem. Like why are you in a simulation in front of my car, right? That's just that's dumb it. on your part. Yeah, that's mm. the laws of physics are working against you there, Skippy. <laughs> there is a great video going around. I saw it on uh LinkedIn, but another one, but they show, you know, there's been so many carjackings going on in some of the Latin American countries, you know, like Brazil and places like that. And what they do is they come out in front of you with a gun and they want to try to get you to stop. But this one guy was like, now nah, we ain't playing that, homie. He hits the guy and knocks the guy into a tree, I think. If it didn't kill him, it really messed him up. But it's like even the citizen had the idea. It's like you don't slow down for the stuff. You, right. If you if you stop, you die. Well, we were stopped. Like they make you stop because there's a like an arm, you know, one of the the parking arms. So they want you to stop because they want to see kind of I think what you're going Reaction to do. Be- like he tells you to stop, um, you know. So you do, and then they come up to the side. So I knew I wasn't going to hurt anyone. And how many of your classmates passed that? Not too many. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of them freaked out, started talking, like reasoning with the guy, you know, like those kinds of things. Maybe I just don't have empathy or care. I just, I don't know. I'm not going to stick around. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Reminds me of somebody who failed to follow your advice, Steve, and that was Boyd Holbrook is like, whatever you do, don't go in the house. <laughs> <laughs> and for that story, you got to go on Patreon. Yes, you do. You got to find. <laughs> You know, I think it kind of goes back to what I had said before about soft skills. Um, I think there's a common sense chip that people either have or they don't have. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Absolutely. Um, common sense is not well, common. You know, I think we think that the CIA is looking for, can you shoot a gun? Can you major in this language? Can you take, like, we're so clinical about these things. And, like, that's not what they're looking for, <laughs> you know. Oh, it's, it's critical thinking. That's what it all comes down to. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, back to our regularly scheduled uh, spy novel. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I'm loving uh, this know, topic. <laughs> this is this is again. But you know what? Things. This is cool because we have talked about a lot of things. But uh, again, you're making history again, Tracy, because we have never talked about uh, anybody from the intelligence community on this podcast. So you know, really? no. A, a lot of our stuff is law enforcement related. Now, people who you know who uh, worked inside of you know tangentially or worked with it or they were part of it, like you know DEA. Um, ATF, you know, some of the other folks, but to get somebody who was uh, brought into a an intelligence agency like the CIA, that yeah, we're breaking ground here. This is what we do at Game of Crimes. We break ground. I just assumed that you had had folks from... No, you're, we... You're, you're the, leading the way. You, you are leading the charge for others to follow. We will blaze a trail. There you go. <laughs> we preach so you can be a leader. That's unofficial you, motto there, so... We um, preach to everybody, you can be a leader or a follower. You're being the leader. We that's like right. It. So, um, so like you say, it takes you a few months to get out into the field. How does, now, originally it started off with poisons though, right? But you went into, uh, chemicals, which ended up in WMD or was that the same thing? No. So what I, it is the same thing and we have to separate out the two. I did not do a rock WMD. That wasn't a thing. Um, I did Al Qaeda. WMD. And so Al Qaeda is not looking to procure nukes and things like that. That's not their, their jam. They don't have, um, 
the ability to manufacture it. They don't have the ability to launch it. They don't. Right. So, um, you know, that's not when I joined that group, it was 2002. We weren't, you know, a Roth WMD um, at that time. We were more focused on how Al Qaeda had, you know, divided themselves up. Right. You know, and so we had this WMD group. We knew that a guy named uh, Zarqawi was tapped by bin Laden to commit attacks with toxins and poisons. And so that was my group's job. Yeah, which is, that is an interesting thing, too, because like you say, they don't have the infrastructure to support nuclear weapons. They'd like to get maybe some radioactive material, maybe a dirty yeah, bomb. dirty bomb. Right. Yeah, but nothing, they're not looking to acquire an actual nuclear warhead. So, <laughs> like that's... Yeah. So, yeah. So let's start getting into this because this sets the stage now for a lot of your analytical work will be used later, but not in a way that you had had intended. Um, But let's talk about your progression now, because, you know, in the pre-call and when you read the book too, you go, you are, um, you are not in one place for very long. I mean, you are going all over the place. I mean, so. So we have to remember, you know, that time was crazy. Right. And you're not going to be in one place for two years like typical um, tours are. We had terrorism is multinational. Right. And so we were everywhere in the Middle East, Africa, Europe, war zones, Afghanistan, um, you name it. Uh, But that was our job was to try to track down members of this poison network that we had identified to track them down, find human assets that could help them find us, uh, find them. And that, that was my, my job. And so that's what took me to so many different countries was trying to get that information. And, and there's an interesting thing too. I know you won't say much about it. I'll throw in something that I learned, but you know, back in the days before they really started getting strict with passports and controls and biometrics, you were able to get identities much easier than you can today because of the use of, like I said, biometrics. And so there's some things now out they call true name. But uh, in your book, you also talk about it too. This is your this is your first time using. Uh, well, not that we know that you're good at using aliases because you had a fake ID to to get into bars back in college. But <laughs> this is your first time, you know, uh, traveling, you know, uh, uh, under an alias. Uh, did that, I mean, did that affect you at all? Was it just like part of the job or was there kind of like this element is like, I know I'm me, but I'm supposed to be this other person. So how much of you is in that other person? I can't answer that question. I'm sorry. That's all right. Okay. <laughs> all right. We don't give it trade secrets. All right. Well, uh, I will tell you. So, well, you still look the same. <laughs> you you still talk, talk this. <laughs> yeah, we can. We can. Talk. You still look the same. You still talk the same. No, what I would meant more was just like psychologically. Um, did you have to be somebody different? Can you answer that one, or did you have to? Were you still pretty much? For example, I'll give you an example. A lot of the guys that we talked to that worked undercover, um, and this is different. This is law enforcement. They'll use their first name because the last thing you want to do is have somebody say, "Hey, Bobby," and your name is Steve, and you don't, you know. You, mm-hmm. you know, you're not looking when somebody yells that name. So a lot of them use their same first name. Did you have to, you know, were you the same person, basically just different alias? Or did you have to think psych- psychologically, mentally, did you have to think different? <laughs> trying to figure. I'm... <laughs> I am. I, we can tell, we can see you on the, on the video. Really we can tell you're very uncomfortable with this. at all about cover stuff. I'm so sorry. No, no, that's, 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 don't apologize. I just kind of like to see his point. I really respect where I used to work and I would never want to. um, Yep. 
you're living up to your oath, and that's that's you know to me that's uh, something to be very proud of. And you mentioned it, Morgan, too, about now that biometrics are in place for people who are, I would imagine it does make it harder. Oh. I can, probably can say that, but yes, you know, I would imagine it makes it harder. Yeah, it's and as simple as 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 you know, scars, marks, and tattoos, not to mention the irises and, and the facial recognition and everything. Well, the thing they're talking about now is called true name. It's like you're getting to it's the point now to where you, you – because you have – now what we – to your point, uh, to Tracy, what you didn't have back in the 90s when you were getting into this, there was no social media. There were no profiles. There were no yeah, – there was no real history. You could invent something, whereas now – they look at Instagram. They look at Facebook. They look at LinkedIn. Do you have a history on there? So the challenges now are using true name. And it's not just our challenge. It's the challenge for Russia. It's the challenge for China. It's the challenge for you know anybody else that's operating in this space. So, But like anything else, they will figure out a way. The CIA has always been good about figuring out a way <laughs> and getting through this. So anyway, we digress back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So um, how was it? This is obviously not... Um, the same kind of subject matter you studied in college. How was it learning about this stuff between what you thought you knew and what you were being exposed to? Yeah, I think I thought that I'll just be blunt. And if I offend people, I'm, I'm very sorry, but at least I'll admit um, sort of where I was wrong. I think I thought that everyone in the Middle East was violent and that Islam was violent because I had all of these preconceived notions. <clears throat> but once you know, I went and lived in some of these places, I realized that Al-Qaeda is the exception, not the rule um, to how people are in the Middle East and what Islam is. And so I think that was sort of this uh, huge wake up call, I guess, for, for me. Um, and so that that was sort of one of the things that I learned that was a good thing, right? I learned a lot about the Middle East. I learned to love it um, and respect it and understand it um, a little bit better and to understand Al-Qaeda. Right. And that it's not um, everyone in the Middle East and it's not Islam. It's not, I, I learned a lot about that. You know, and, and, and just to throw in a little side story, when I was based in Miami, the only Colombians I'd ever met were the people I put in jail. And as wrong as it is, you stereotype an entire country. I did. And then when, when my wife and I got to Colombia and we lived there for three years, we found out it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. The Colombian, you know, the, the hardworking, legitimate citizens are some of the greatest people you'll ever meet. 100%. So I think I totally agree with you. And I think that's in a good, good thing that happened to me, um, you know, being able to be overseas. And buying jewelry at the souks. We've, mm -hmm. uh, if you go over to the Middle East, you got to now, did you negotiate? <laughs> did you take their first price or did you negotiate them? You look like a negotiator. I actually never really, I mean, I went to the souks from time to time. I never really bought jewelry, to be totally honest with you. Uh, occasionally I would, but I, the it wasn't jewelry I liked per se. And I think, um, you know, there was already attention on me because of the way that I looked. I wasn't really interested in drawing more attention to myself. Um so a lot of times I, I bought some rugs. I think rugs were, were something I was interested in, but I would always send um, like members of SEAL Team 6 out to go get them for me because I just didn't want to draw more attention to myself, I think. Well, a blonde-haired, light-skinned gringo is what I would call you. It sticks out like a, it's like me being in Colombia. I'm English, Irish heritage. I'm 6'2". I don't blend in. Yeah, <laughs> so I think... Like I knew, right, that I didn't blend in. And when I had to go out, obviously I went out to meet with assets and those kinds of things. But I think sometimes less is more, right? You know, and so, yes, I went to some souks, of course. But, um, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. 
Yeah. Hey, uh, tell it. I don't know what a souk is. Explain that to me. It's a big open air market, basically. I don't know any other way. So like a swap meet, right? Are people familiar with what a flea market or a swap meet is? In the Middle East, they're very, very popular, really in all the Middle Eastern countries, quite frankly. Um, and there are days that they have like bigger ones than others. Um, and so, and there's some countries that are known for having sort of these grander ones than others. And it's really a cultural experience, in my opinion, because, you know, that you can buy jewelry there, you can buy, you know, clothes, rugs, food, right? Like everyone, some people are doing, going to do their grocery shopping there, right? Um, and you can haggle and, and do all those fun things. So it's, it's like going in the Brand, Grand Bazaar there in Istanbul, Turkey. That place yeah. is huge. The Grand Bazaar is a souk. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And I learned too. I learned I've got some lessons from going in there. So like you don't take their first price, then they're gonna know you're an amateur. So and yeah. one lesson I learned too is when you buy gold there, you buy it by the gram. It's like I want this, how many grams in it? So the area mm -hmm. last I was in at UAE over at Dubai, it was like, Hey yeah, you buy it by the gram. So I the the bigger of a piece of gold you got, the more it weighed, the more you paid. And so but you had to negotiate, otherwise you go, Oh, you're an amateur. Get out of here. <laughs> I negotiated a few times, but I think for the most part, for me, I, it was weird. I bought rugs. I have like seven or eight rugs. Um, and I bought art um, in, in one of the countries. It was a way to fundraise for girls to go to school. Um, and they hadn't been able to in the past. So I bought art because I knew that the money was going to them. Um, and so it was like things like that, that I would, but when I bought the art, that particular art, I wasn't going to haggle price because I knew it was like for charity. It was helping them out. Yeah. But for the rugs, um, I, I went once and bought a rug in a souk, but in another country I was in, I just didn't want to be out gratuitously. It just wasn't. And so I remember sending the seals with just like, here's money. You need, you may not spend more than this. And this is how many rugs you must come back with. And so. <laughs> and you know, it takes a, it takes a special relationship with the seals to tell them to go do that to task them here you go <laughs> I got along with them Great. I mean, I well, you mentioned in the book too. A lot of people think that uh, the seals might be like rough and just coarse and just you know no respect for a lot of stuff. But you mentioned in the book too, which I think most most good operators like that are. They were very respectful of you, not not sexist, not demeaning. I mean, they considered you like you, you are a part of our team. You do different things, but we all are part of this one team over here. One hundred percent. I think you kind of have to be. I don't. I don't know. I never. Never had any issues. Yeah, would we make inappropriate jokes? Absolutely. But that well, was we all do. Yeah. I mean, that was part of just being friends. I, I mm -hmm. never. Um, it's I building camaraderie. I, yeah, we just had a camaraderie. I, I got along with them. I mean, they sometimes were protective of me to a point where I would get up, I'd get pissed and be like, "Excuse me," like I went through this, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like, you shouldn't get in a cab alone in this country. We'll go with you. I'm like go away you know like those kinds of things but other than that um I but, never. you know, that's the that's the that's the paternalistic too of, of anybody who's got kids or father. They want to. Part of it, too, is, you know, I think people are like, oh, my God, that's so sexist. Like, no, it's not. Part of it is just that how we are programmed. Right. Male versus female. And so I never viewed it as as like sex. I didn't think that they were trying to be. I think that that's just how they are programmed. Right. It's right. Yeah. Like they're males. Like they don't want anybody to go out alone. You always need to have a partner, a wingman, yeah, backup. So I, you know, I just. Yeah. The buddy well, system. The buddy system. The buddy. Yeah. I never had any issues ever. Well, that's and see, that's that's the thing we love about doing this stuff because what what you've just done with several things is like 
you take what people might think, but now you start saying, but no, this is the way it really was. This is the way facts are on the ground. And we're getting a lot of this. You're moving through now. So now, like you say, the WMDs, you're looking at Al-Qaeda. Um, you are bouncing around. I mean, you know, different countries all the time. How long does this go on for you? I mean, you're doing this for years, a couple years. Years. Yeah. Um, obviously I think I'm sure now things are super different, right. And people do like typical tours, right. Of a year, two years, depending, um, now, but back then you have to understand, like they didn't want people being gone for two years in one country when terrorism wasn't static, right. Like there's just so much stuff. So Yeah. Did you ever have an incident where you thought your cover had been blown? No. That's good. That, I mean, that's good backstopping, too, because that's good tradecraft, and uh, they've covered the bases. Um, but you are doing this stuff. At what point does this information—tell us, start setting the stage now for uh, the tables that we talked about that ended up being used— uh, by Colin Powell, right, in the presentation to the UN. How does that come about? What are you tasked with doing? What are you collecting? What are you working on that starts forming the basis for this happening? So sure, as I mentioned before, um, our job was to try to identify people that bin Laden had sort of tapped to commit attacks, terrorist attacks, uh, with WMDs, but again, not nukes. We're talking about ricin, botulinum, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and so even though I know that this seems something an analyst would do, we we were not analysts, but you have to remember, we have to keep our targets straight. There's a lot of people that we're looking for. And a very accrued way to do that is to just make a chart, right? Like it's just something we do and we hang it in our office and you know, it's a guy named Zarqawi was at the top of our chart. And one of the things that bin Laden did was he farmed out you know, work and areas of operation to people. That's what he did. Al-Qaeda sort of operates like a franchise, right? Um, and Zarqawi, who was the guy who earlier on, this was like in 1998-ish, he had kind of tapped as being like, you're my poison dude. You have the experience. I, I want you to build networks to do this. And so that he was obviously at the top of our chart for very clear reasons. Um, and then, you know, under him, we had different people that we had identified, um, as being maybe the head of procuring poisons in Latin America or the head, of, right? Like we had, we had identified what this network looks like because you can't then go after these people if you don't know who you're going after and why you're going after them. And so we had their names and phone numbers and locations. Um, and we always had that up in our office. So when you'd come back, sometimes there'd be people we'd add. Sometimes there's people you X out because we killed them, right? Like, so, you know, it was just, helpful information. Um, and a member of the administration came down to our skiff, which is not unusual. Again, it's a weird time guys, like, <laughs> uh, important people all the time and saw that chart. And there had been this discussion. Again, I did not work in the Iraq group. This is at the time they're starting to set up this Iraq group, but we were not a part of that. We were CTC WMD. And there was discussion and questions about uh, is this guy Zarqawi, is he friends with Saddam Hussein? Is he hanging out in Iraq? And we we're like, no, he doesn't. <laughs> like he and Saddam Hussein are two very different people. Like, no. Um, and they saw our chart. They asked us for the chart. We didn't think anything of it. You just give it to them. Like, right. It's not a, and they asked us, you know, has Zarqawi been in Iraq? And we're like, no, other than to like transit a flight, right? He had like a layover there. Um, and then we think maybe he, during that layover, he got like a UTI and had to go to a hospital and get, you know, like treatment for it. And then, but there was nothing, 
that to us is very mundane, right? Like that's, no, he's not like hanging out with Saddam Hussein and chatting about, you know, like they're not, no, he clearly was transiting Iraq, clearly developed some kind of an affection, went to a doctor, got medicine, and then carried on his merry way to wherever he was going. It was like three days. I'm sorry. Yes, it was, it was maybe three days that he was there, which is not anything that is at least weird to me. Um, and so, you know, we're like, no, of course not. He didn't hang out in Iraq. We didn't think anything of it, but about a week later, a few days later, uh, was when Colin Powell made his, you know, sort of infamous speech now on the floor of the UN, um, justifying, you know, the war in Iraq. And the title of the chart that we had was, um, uh, the Al-Qaeda Poison Network. That was the title of our chart. Um, the chart's title was changed um, to uh, Al-Qaeda Connections to Iraq. And he used that chart to garner um, support to go into Iraq. And he talks about it in his book. I think um, Tennant talks about it too. I don't know if I read that. Uh, I, I know I didn't read Powell's book. I think I read part of Tennant's book, uh, but I may have forgotten. So, what do you? What? How did he address that? How did uh, George Tennant address it in his book about the chart? I thought it was misused. That that was. I mean, he backs up basically what I say, right? That this is not <laughs> like how. Um, this is not what the use of the chart was for. This is not, you know, what. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. Hey, everybody, that is the end of part one, Tracy Walder, the unexpected spy. Part two is coming out. You got to hear the part of how a trained CIA operative handles a six-year-old girl. That is one of the best parts of this next segment. In the meantime, go check us out at GameofCrimesPodcast.com at our webpage, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And also check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Stay with us. Part two, Tracy Walder, the unexpected spy. Coming up next.